My name is Carrie Ginger, and your host of the Vital Podcast, Know Better, Live Best. Today, we continue our conversation about water with award-winning author and journalist, Charles Fishman. Listen as we dive deeper on how we all can do our part to conserve water. Know Better, Live Best is dedicated to supporting food and health literacy in people of all ages. Our mission is to cut through the misinformation surrounding food, health, and nutrition because we believe that when people know better, they can make the right choices and live their best lives. We are presented by Biteable Foods. They use blockchain and Internet of Things technology to build traceable, transparent food systems because it shouldn't take an investigative journalist to find out where food comes from. You asked a few minutes ago, what can the typical person do? This is one of those things where it's possible to, to take both sides. You can say, who cares what kind of toilet I have, right? My two gallons, three times a day, that's not why New York or Oklahoma City or Portland, Oregon is going to run out of water or not run out of water. But it's not you. It's you times everybody else, right? We have tripled the gas mileage of cars on the road compared to when I was in high school, compared to 30 or 40 years ago. Are we sorry that our Honda Accord gets 35 miles to the gallon instead of 11? I don't think anybody is. No, you know what? I want a car that gets really <laughs> terrible gas mileage, right? No one would think that. And the truth is, despite the political debate about gas mileage, which, which I think is kind of silly, it's never actually impacted us, except positively. You never get in your beautiful new car or go buy a three-year-old used car that you're excited about and say, boy, the only thing I don't like about this car is it gets good gas mileage, right? Maybe the color isn't what you want. Maybe you wish you had leather seats instead of cloth seats, but the fact that it gets good gas mileage is not an impediment. And by the way, none of us are, are running indie races in our cars. I've never been in an American car that couldn't get it up to 85 miles an hour to go where it needs to go on the interstate, right? And so the same is absolutely true of water. We've gone, just in the time since I wrote the book, just in the last decade, we've gone from an average of about 103 gallons of water per person in the U.S. to 85. Right now, as a country, and this includes only 20% of the water the United States uses every day is used by you and me by turning on the tap, turning on the dishwasher, taking a shower. 80% of the water is used for two really big things, growing food and generating electricity. Almost half the water, in fact, in the country is used for generating electricity. So there is no question that, that you and I both use more water keeping the lights on in our house, running the air conditioning or the furnace, running the computers. Literally, we use more water every day doing that than we do with actual water. The typical electricity that, Ameri that an American uses at home, an individual, not a household, the typical electricity that each of us uses takes about 200 gallons of water a day to generate. So there's, there's literally an invisible water pipe running to your computer or your big screen TV. So the way we've gotten from 103 to 85, among other things, is we have water efficient toilets. We have water efficient washing machines. We have water efficient dishwashers. I don't know how people feel about their dishwasher. Washing machines are kind of amazing, right? They set the water level automatically. They weigh the clothes. 
you put in there. They set the water level automatically. I think modern washing machines are kind of a miracle. They use not much water. Your clothes come out at least as clean as they did 30 or 40 years ago. And with modern detergents and all that other stuff, sometimes cleaner. It's, it, your clothes last longer. Well, that makes a huge difference. You can't buy a toilet that uses five gallons of flush anymore. A, a typical toilet um, installed in a home, I think, uses probably two. The commercial toilets, especially urinals that just handle urine, are down to one and a half, one and a half liters, one and a half gallons of flush. So gradually over time, all those toilets that get installed or replaced every year in new office buildings, in new subdivisions, in new apartment buildings, in office buildings that gets renovated, that get renovated very slowly, that, that changes water use for everybody. So no, one toilet flush doesn't matter. One turning off the water while you brush your teeth doesn't matter. But if everybody in America runs the water 30 seconds less, that's 330 million people times 30 seconds every day. Guess what? That adds up to a lot. The second thing that paying attention to your own water use does. So in our family, we use, we use about half the amount of water that a typical family does. We, we run sort of 40 to 50 gallons a person a day. Now that our kids are, are out of the house um, in college, my wife and I just don't, you know, we just don't use, there's two less people in the house, two less showers, two less toilet flushing, less dishes, the whole deal. But part of the value of paying attention is that water's on your mind. And so the big question is, how does your community use water? Is there a reuse system? That purple pipe system that, that Orlando installed, more and more cities are finding imaginative ways of doing that. So in San Antonio, Texas, San Antonio is in a dry part of the country. They have big water supply problems. San Antonio has done some really imaginative things. They do have a purple pipe system. They take all their wastewater and clean it just like Orange County, Florida. They've chosen to do something completely different with it. Downtown, there's a river running right through the heart of San Antonio. And in the dry periods, the river, to keep this sort of waterscape beautiful, uses <laughs> purified wastewater from the reuse plant to keep the water level where you want. The other thing that San Antonio has done is instead of a purple pipe system supplying all new construction for outdoor use, they've created a single loop of purple pipe plumbing, industrial scale, through the whole part of the city. And they have about 50 commercial users, people who use big quantities of water and want the reuse water. They price the reuse water at half the cost of drinking water, and they're taking pressure off the drinking water system, they're lowering the cost to do business in San Antonio, and they're supplying water to people, to companies, to factories and, and commercial outlets for whom the purple pipe water is more than clean enough, either because they're using it for applications where it's already clean enough, or just the opposite, because their water needs to be so clean that they clean it themselves, and they don't care if it's potable or almost potable, they're going to clean it anyway. Well, that's, that's genius. One of the big problems of climate change is going to be making sure you can sustain the water supply of your community. And 
San Antonio gets its water from an aquifer under the city, not unlike Orange County, Florida, but that aquifer is recharged a lot more episodically than in Florida because Texas gets less rain than Florida does. Well, they were worried about all the construction, all the growth, which happened to be happening right in the places where the aquifers recharge. So if you build shopping centers, roads, and subdivisions, then even when it does rain, the rain goes into the gutter and the storm drain rather than back into the ground and into the aquifer. So about 12 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, San Antonio proposed to its residents a one-eighth of a penny tax, sales tax. So you have to spend $8 to be charged a penny to accumulate a fund of money to buy land over the aquifer and protect it permanently as wildlands. And so this is literally a quote-unquote tax increase, but it's not one you would ever notice. If you spend $80, it increases the cost of what you bought by a dime. Um, That little tax generates $40 million a year. The voters voted for it. They have voted for it twice more since then. It's actually set to expire as part of the appeal. We're going to try this for five years. It sunsets. If we don't like it, if you think it's too expensive, it'll go away, but you get the chance to vote yes or no again. They've renewed it twice, and they have bought all of this wildland, which has done two things. It's prevented the city from sprawling in this crazy way, which makes supplying water, sewer, electricity, schools much harder. Density is actually much more sustainable because that land isn't available to be developed. They don't compel anybody to do anything. They go out there and say, here's some money. We'd like to buy your farm. We'd like to buy your family's old land and you can keep ranching, but it will never be you know, saleable for a subdivision. The aquifer they rely on has actually begun to recharge very gradually, even though the city is growing. They are protecting exactly the parts of the community they need to protect to sustain their future. Well, you know, who would think, oh, a sales tax is what our community needs to protect the future of its water supply? But what a genius idea done in a completely politically appealing way, right? We didn't force you to do anything. We explained the problem. We gave you a solution that even if you're economically strained, isn't going to change your life at all. And by the way, 30 years from now, won't we be glad we did it this way? We'll have all this open land to enjoy, but also our water supply will be safe forever. So that's what I mean when I say smart cities, the only way, look, water problems are all the same. The, The kind of water problem that Orlando or Las Vegas or San Antonio is facing in some ways is no different than looking at the ceiling in your living room and seeing a wet spot after it rains, right? No one, no one turns to their spouse and says, hey, honey, it looks like the roof's leaking. Why don't we wait a few years and see if the, if the leak fixes itself, right? Whatever the state of your checking account, the sooner you fix the roof leak, the better, because it's only going to get worse. Every water problem in the world at the scale of cities and metropolitan areas is exactly the same. Water problems never solve themselves. In communities, the important thing is to look far ahead and imagine where you want to be. You can't wave a magic wand 
and take out 30 years of development in San Antonio and say, look, see, we just went backwards and now we've protected all this land. You have to say, wouldn't it be nice 30 years from now if the parts of this community that ensure our water supply were still wild so the water could get there? How do we do that? What's the right way? Well, again, one penny on every $8 doesn't solve the problem in six months or a year. But in 30 years, it makes a huge difference. And so you need smart leaders, you need to think ahead, and you need to put aside wishful thinking. You can look at the ceiling in your living room and say, I wish the roof wasn't leaking, but that will not make it stop leaking. Well, information is key. I'm sure the average consumer know that there is probably a problem, but they don't know where to start. And I agree. I think we need to ask those important questions that you are asking to get the information out to everyone so the public can start asking their city officials what they can do. Because it sounds like there are different ways you can solve the water problem. I would even say it's okay to be one step more passive than that, which is to say, I want people to pay attention to water so that when the issue comes up in their community, if you live in Charleston, if you live in Salt Lake City, if you live in San Francisco, you are going to be facing water problems and water decisions in the next five years. You personally probably aren't going to have to do the fixing, but you're going to have to know enough to have confidence in the decisions people are making. You're going to have to know enough so that if it's worth going to a meeting, if it's worth picking up the phone, you've actually paid enough attention to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want the 18 month fix. I don't want the two year fix. I want something that's, this problem isn't going away. Let's fix it for 20 years. Let's figure out how to involve everybody so that we get a good solution. Even if it costs a little more in the short term, we can't afford to run out of water. It doesn't matter where you live. The most expensive thing, and again, not, not, to, be, not to be overly clever, no matter the state of your checking account, the cheapest thing to do is fix the, the leak in the roof over your living room immediately. Because if you wait three months, all that's going to happen is the water is going to do more damage to the wallboard, to the rafters, to the roof itself, right? And the same is true with fixing water problems that are overtaking communities. The least expensive solution is the one you put in place soonest and that has the longest term horizon that where you're thinking about how do we get here how do we get 40, you know, how do we get the right solution for 40 years from now? And you have to acknowledge reality. You have to say, you have to look at your water problems clearly. Climate change isn't going away. Climate change isn't fake. Climate change is real. It's going to change what happens in your community. And the way to handle that is to say, okay, what kind of water availability do we want? How do we get there? If you're willing to pick up the phone, if you're willing to run for city council, if you're willing to run for your local sewer commission or water board, Great. But well before that, just understanding the basics is really important. You know, an analogy I like to use sometimes that I think people really understand is if you start saving for retirement when you're 25 and you save whatever, five or 7% of your income, you save what starts out at a few thousand dollars a year and, and grows to, to more as your income grows, by the time you're 65 or 70, you've got more than enough money to retire. And there's never been a year where you thought, God, my life is good, except for the fact that I'm saving for retirement. You're saving a little bit at a time. And by the end, you're in good shape. If you look around at age 58 and say, 
oh, I want to retire in seven years. I have, I have no savings. Even if you save every dollar you make, even if you don't pay the electric bill, the rent, or buy a drop of food for the next seven years, there is no way you'll have enough money to retire. And so water problems cannot be fixed in a panic at the last minute. They just aren't susceptible to that. They're, they're too big, they're too spread out, they're too demanding. By the same token, water problems can be saved, a la Las Vegas, three gallons at a time over 30 years in a way that would be impossible even if you had unlimited money in three years. And so, so it's, in that sense, it's just like something like saving for retirement, losing weight, the same thing. You can't, in fact, lose 10 pounds in two weeks, but you can lose 10 pounds in five months, right? And so this is the same thing. We've got to tackle this before the problems overtake us. When we see the first signs of bad things happening, that's the moment to look around, assess the situation in your community realistically, and then be realistic about what it's going to take to fix it, not a year from now, but 10 years from now. I appreciate all the information you are giving people because they need to know that to ask the bigger questions and to care because it's already a problem. It is important what kind of washing machine you have and how often you, you know, I was going to, I think I was going to say, I, I, I sidetracked myself, but one of the things we do in our house is we don't flush the toilet when we just pee. And that seems like a small thing, but what it means is we flush the toilet 75% less than if we flushed it every single time. Toilet flushing, in fact, <laughs> not to zero in on this weird, uh, weird corner of the world, toilet flushing is the number one use of water indoors for American homes. Watering the lawn, number one use of water overall, and number one use, obviously, outside. Inside the house, flushing toilets is the number one use of water. So if you can, if, if you can bring yourself to change that one small habit, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, that's one of the ways that we end up using half the water that the typical that the typical American uses. I think that's an easy piece that everyone could start now. I do it even when I'm in a hotel, right? If I mm -hmm. check into a hotel, I don't need to flush the toilet every single time I pee. And you're always in some part of the country that's either having a water problem or is going to have a water problem. So really, my young boys were onto something. They're not forgetful. They're really just saving water. So I guess I'll just look at it that way. Absolutely. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. A lot of our listeners care about where their food comes from, and we like to ask our guests their viewpoint on food. Why do you care where your food comes from? My wife uh, is the environment and climate editor at the Washington Post, and I have been paying attention to water, which is clearly an environmental issue for a dozen years. And so we, we of course, pay very close attention to where our food comes from. I'm a big believer in organic when it makes sense. The idea that you're eating food that hasn't been sprayed with poisons um, should seem quite appealing to people. I totally understand the importance and value of pesticides and, I, and, and, and um, herbicides, and I understand why they're important or have been important as, as part of the way uh, agriculture works. But the degree to which we can grow the food we need without Spraying fields with pesticides and herbicides is great. And we're also, we're pretty focused on the water and energy footprint of food. Uh, we have consciously, we're not vegetarians in our family, but we have consciously tried to cut back the amount of meat we use. 
meat's a huge driver of greenhouse gases, and meat is also a huge consumer of water in the farming process. It's, it's much less water intensive to grow vegetables than to grow meat. And a large part of the US farm system grows vegetables for cows and pigs. So that it's very clear uh, uh, what, what, the, what the trigger there is. So we pay attention and we, we try, some people are mem- you know, members of these cooperatives that get local farm products delivered uh, once a week. We haven't stepped into that yet because we're, we're a little worried that we don't eat enough vegetables to consume a, a, a quarter bushel of kale every week. But we know where the local farmers markets are. We know where the local fruit stands and vegetable stands are. And we much prefer to get our fruits and vegetables locally, both because we want there to be a farming community, right? I, I actually live on fruits and vegetables all day long. I'm sitting here with my clementine, which I assure you is not locally grown, but we want there to be, we want to have access to that nearby. And also, of course, the idea that your strawberries come from California and you live in Washington, D.C., that your raspberries come from Chile, a little plastic box of raspberries shipped from Chile, that's kind of crazy. Now, it's wonderful. It's lovely. The, the, the raspberries are, are juicy and sprightly with that you know, perfect mix of, of both sweet and bitter. But did they really need to make the trip from Chile so that I could eat them? Um, I do the shopping, so I wouldn't say my wife is on board with this. I'm not sure she notices, but we're just even a little careful about seasonality, right? If it's if it's not raspberry season, we don't need raspberries. Let's eat let's eat the fruits and vegetables that are appropriate. You can get watermelon in the grocery store in mid-November in Washington, DC, but it ain't watermelon season, ladies and gentlemen. So let's eat what's appropriate, you know, to the to the moment. And so so sure, we're careful. You know, we, we think about where our seafood comes from. All those things have an impact on things we care about. And the nice thing is that it's, it's actually really easy to pay attention. It used to be hard. Now all the fruit, all the vegetables, all the food actually tells you where it came from. And so all those people that people sort of thought were slightly wacky activists 30 years ago, They've changed the world, and we are all the beneficiaries of it. You said earlier, it's really good for people to have information. You can you can eat with great consciousness now, and I think that's really, really important. I agree. I do feel it has gotten easier. Hang on one more second. Let me make one more point. Often that consciousness trickles up, right? Mm-hmm. Whole Foods was a kind of quirky, weird, organic grocery store. I actually wrote about them in 1997, 1998 for Fast Company Magazine when they were tiny and um, competing with a bunch of other organic chains. Now you walk into every grocery store in America and Walmart, the largest seller of organic produce in the world, right? But also McDonald's. Where Where did the beef come from? Where did the lettuce come from? Where did the tomatoes come from? Well, when that consciousness trickles up, you can say, yeah, but McDonald's is whatever, appalling anyway. Okay. That's fine. You can decide whether you want to eat there or not. But wouldn't you rather have a place like Walmart and a place like McDonald's since they exist? Wouldn't you rather have them doing the right thing? You're never going to wave a magic wand and get McDonald's to disappear. You're never going to wave a magic wand and get the people who find that that really to be a treat, whatever, once a week, twice a month, to stop doing that. 
but isn't it great that the tomatoes and the lettuce that, that go into those sandwiches, that the beef that goes into those sandwiches has been transformed into something much more sustainable? It absolutely is. So th the impact of what looks like quirky consciousness, when it spreads out, we're still talking about sort of individual action, can ultimately have a dramatic impact. And I think the attention to where food comes from, how it's made, how far it travels, how it was grown, what we do for the farmers, all of that really, really, really matters. Absolutely. What is your vision for the future of agriculture? You know, I don't, I don't think I know enough to know. Agriculture is one of these places a little bit like water. We know how to do it better than it's done. You know, there are farmers who know how to grow corn and wheat and carrots and strawberries with 20% less water than is typical, and they do do that. How do we get the 85% who aren't using that technique to use it? How do we incentivize these urban farms in, in, in old warehouse buildings that use hydroponics, all that stuff? I don't think I know enough to know how to do that, but many of those problems are solved. It's just a question of figuring out how to persuade people who are doing the work to switch to a, a method that's better for the food cycle and better for the environment, better for the water supply, better for the soil. You know, no-till farming, which was sort of people rolled their eyes, you know, come on, man. Well, guess what? No-till farming's brilliant. It seems a little counterintuitive. It was regarded as crazy, whatever, 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. Now, if you're not doing it, you're the stupid one, right? So the real question is how to bridge people into the future we want them to go to. We know what we want for the long term of the agricultural community, right? But individual farmers don't live in the long term. They got to make it through the season. They got to send their kids to college. They got to figure out a way to pay the property taxes, pay for the combine, and actually get the food to harvest. And so of all the places I would like to spend money and imagination, I'd like to say, you know, and this isn't, this isn't very helpful, but I'd like to help farmers get to the new world we want them to live in because we, we need them mm -hmm. to do this the right way. We need them to exist, <laughs> you know, if everybody just throws up their hands and says, well, this is too hard. I'm going to go work at a call center. I'm going to be a software programmer. That's not actually going to work for us very well because I can't, I can't eat computer programs. And we not only need them to exist, we need them to do their jobs as smartly as possible. And the economic incentives don't always exist for them to do that themselves. We need to help them. And of all the ways we could be spending money publicly, that to me is a really important one. We want, it's a little bit like water. We want a future 30 years from now that we can't get to if we wait 27 years and do it in the last three. We got to do it a little bit at a time each year. And, and we may need to spend some money. And you know what? We may need to pay a little bit more for our strawberries. Or if the strawberries are too expensive, decide that they are too expensive for us in order to get there. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I know I learned a lot and the listeners did too. So why don't you tell us where our listeners can find you and one big takeaway. You can, you can just Google me, Charles Fishman. I, I come up. I did do that. <laughs> if, the, uh, if, the, if the topic is water, if the topic is Walmart, if the topic is space, I'm, I'm out there. This summer, I wrote 50 stories 
in 50 days without taking a day off, 50 days in a row about going to the moon. So if you're curious about that, that's at Fast Company. My books are all on Amazon, The Big Thirst, The Water Book. Uh, I think most days you can get it for eight bucks. It's in almost every library in America. And the space book, One Giant Leap. I just spent four years immersed in the world of the people who took America to the moon, who took the world to the moon in the 1960s. From 1961 to 1969, we had no idea how to do it. And then there we were, you know, romping around on the moon. Eventually we flew, we flew a car to the moon three times and drove around. Those cars are parked up there waiting for someone to come clean off the, the uh, solar panels and light them up again. What's the connection for me between that and, and water and the top and the conversation we've been having? Here's the connection. You cannot help but come away from four years immersed in the 1960s in the race to the moon without feeling optimistic, without thinking, wow, look at what those people in 1964 and 1967 did to get us to the moon. If they could do that then, look what we could do. The, the computer that flew the spaceships to the moon, the spaceship computer had less brain power than your microwave oven. Your iPhone has more computing power, not just than NASA's computers at the time. One iPhone has more computing power than all the computers available to NASA at the same time added up in 1969 when they were flying to the moon. And yet they did it. And we, we sort of have, have a sense of nostalgia about the 1960s and about going to the moon. Like, why don't we do great things like that anymore? You know what? We are a better country in almost every way today in 2019 than we were in 1969. We have better tools available to us. We have much more inclusivity. We have much more sense of consciousness about the impact of our own behavior on the way the world works. Any problem that we've got, we can tackle, we can solve including climate change. That's, that's what I came away with. And, and so any water problem that your community has, any impact of climate change, we can, we can fix it, but not by ignoring it. We, you know, the, the lesson of going to the moon was there was inspiration, there was innovation, there was nine years of relentless hard work. And so if we are rallied to a cause, we will tackle whatever we're rallied to. And so I, I came away nothing but optimistic about, about Americans and our ability to solve problems. And I would say that's the big takeaway. There's no, when you read about climate change, it's easy to get discouraged, but it's just like water. There's no point in being discouraged. If we don't solve the problem, we're really in trouble. And so, and, and as, as I said, as with retirement, the moment to start saving for retirement is not tomorrow. <laughs> the moment to sign up for your 401k if you haven't signed up for your 401k, <laughs> the moment to, to fill out the form is today, before the next paycheck. And the moment to tackle the problems that are in front of us is, is not to wait another month or another year or until another administration in Washington or another Congress. The moment is right now at whatever, at whatever level, and we can do it. I love it. And it seems so hopeful too. So Charles, thank you for coming on our podcast today. We learned so much. All right. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We'd like to remind our audience that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Biteable or of our staff personally. The purpose of the Biteable podcast is to encourage spirited dialogue around topics like food, nutrition, animal and human welfare, and the food system. 
Part of having an open and spirited dialogue is accepting that others have views that are different than ours and working to understand how their experiences have differed from our own. We encourage all listeners to do their own research on any and all topics discussed during the show. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening.